Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. This is Disorder, the podcast where we try to find order in our mad and very bad world. Listening and learning from people with the moral clarity and courage to face down the disorderers. And this week, we're talking with one of the most courageous campaigners of them all, British businessman and human rights activist, Bill Browder. He's someone who's not just repeatedly called out Putin for his crimes, but he's also actively challenged us, the world, to come up with concrete ways to make Putin pay. And today, we're going to be discussing what more can we do to hit Putin where it really hurts, including for his latest atrocity, the shocking murder of Alexei Navalny. Throughout human history, political and religious leaders have sought to silence their opponents, sometimes through censorship, sometimes imprisonment, and sometimes through outright extermination. But in our post-Westphalian order, is allowing this practice to take place in other people's country under their sovereignty compatible with our desire to live in an ordered planet? What role should the West and the international community play in promoting and maintaining free speech, civil rights, human decency, all in other people's countries? And how can we punish those who violate our global norms? All these contradictions are more glaringly obvious than ever. The enduring disorder has made kidnappings and human rights violations par for the course in our global politics. But nowhere on earth does the state use punitive torture and the fear of assassination or arbitrary imprisonment as a deterrent against pro-democracy advocacy as sinisterly as in Putin's Russia. Putin has brought punishment, torture, arbitrary arrest, and assassination of political opponents to a new level. 
We've heard about this phenomenon in our previous episodes with former Congressman Tom Malinowski and human rights advocate Evgenia Karamorsa. But what have we, the orderers, actually done to deter this behavior? I would say very little until one man stepped to the front and center of the scene, and that's Bill Browder, who I'm honored to be joined with today. Bill is both a successful investor, globally acclaimed author, and famous philanthropist and humanitarian advocate. The list of Bill's credentials and achievements, as well as his writings, cannot be rehashed in this setting. But you can, of course, find more about his bio in the show notes to our episode. Suffice it to say that the Magnitsky Act, which Bill created and campaigned for, is still the gold standard throughout the world. We're having this interview less than a week from the tragic and yet all too predictable death of Alexei Navalny, which was announced on Friday, February 16th. Browder knew Navalny personally. He worked with him and he believes that cases such as Navalny's of how dictatorships treat individual campaigners and advocates and how the international community responds to their abuse, arrest, torture, and murder is about more than those individuals. It's about forging a global order. Thank you for being here with me on Disorder, Bill. Great to be here. Let me ask you first, when you were working in Russia and you saw the extent of disorder that was happening there, was your mind wandering and saying, uh-oh, the disorder I see here in Russia is going to in 10, 15, 20 years impact the whole global system? Definitely not. When I got to Russia, it was at the end of the Soviet era. The Soviet Union had fallen apart. Everything was sort of in a state of total chaos as they tried to find their way from communism to capitalism. But the chaos was what I would describe as, first of all, it was very criminal and, and it was very dangerous, but it was totally disorganized crime. You know, you had guys with gold chains and leather jackets and you know, it was as you would imagine the Russian mafia in movies. And if you wanted to avoid trouble, you just kind of didn't drive around in a Maybach or a, you know, a Rolls Royce. You, you know, you'd go around in a Toyota, and, you know, and nobody knew any different. It was all just like what was in front of your face. And so one could kind of live there and function without total fear because it was all just random violence and random crime and crime, you know, mafia on mafia crime and stuff like that. What happened was that when Vladimir Putin came into power, he centralized the crime and it became highly organized crime. And he was the mafia boss. And that was the point at which everything came under his control. And when I say under his control, it was not like he was trying to control things to make Russia a normal country. He wanted to get as much money as he could, line his pockets to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. And he was going to kill anybody who stood in his way. And so who was standing in his way? Any opposition politician who was pointing this out, Boris Nemtsov is a good example. And of course, Alexei Navalny, the most recent example. He would kill investigative journalists, Anna Politkovskaya. He would kill human rights activists. He would kill anti-corruption activists, my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. And the point of all this was that he wanted an uninterrupted flow of money into his coffers. He didn't want anyone to be screaming about how unfair it was that all the money was going to him and, and a thousand people around him and all the um, rest of the people were living in abject poverty with no hospitals and schools and roads and public services. And so that was for a good long time the major thing that he was doing. But then it got worse. 
There was a point in time when Putin realized that he had stolen too much money. <laughs> he and the people around him had stolen a trillion dollars from the Russian state. And so maximizing profit was no longer the primary objective. The primary objective was not to die because the people would rise up, kick you out of your, your office and hang you from a lamppost. And so in order to stay in power, he then had to start doing some really terrible things. And the most terrible thing, of course, is launching a war against a neighboring country. Machiavelli 101, when you're afraid of your own people turning on you, create a foreign enemy. 100%. And I think if we look at run-of-the-mill, quote-unquote, pre-Arab Spring, Arab dictatorships, be it places I've lived like Assad, Syria, or Qaddafi's Libya, there could have been a kleptocracy. There might have been an inner circle. They accumulated power and money, and they killed and silenced and imprisoned opponents. But to my mind, something makes Russia different. Is it the degree of sophistication, either of the security services and surveillance state? Is it the ability to use and launder monies through the international financial system and network? I mean, I see a level of sophistication here, which the Assad regime or the Qaddafis would never dream of achieving. Well, it wasn't always that way. You know, remember, it was the guys with the leather coats and the gold chain and the tattoos. So what had happened was that the as the money started flowing in, you know, they needed to protect their money. And, and by the way, in, in the history of Russia, they've always really admired the West. So back when Peter the Great was around, he went to visit France 100%. and he thought, he thought, wow, Versailles looks really good. Let's make one of them. Let, let's hire some of those guys and make one over here and call it the uh, Winter Palace. And, uh, oh, yeah, Venice is really cool. Let's make some canals up in St. Petersburg. And, they, and they've emulated, like, European law and all sorts of stuff. They, they, like, copy stuff. They've never been originators of any of this. They've always copied. And so they, um, they get involved in all this um, money stealing and all this killing, and they want to keep their money safe. And so what do they do? They go out and they hire the best professionals in the West that money can buy, the best lawyers, the best public relations firms, the best government relations firms, the best computer experts from the West. And they get them in, involved and they create a level of sophistication, which, as you say, it's not consistent with other countries. And, and I should point out that, that there's a huge financial incentive in doing this because the numbers are so much bigger in Russia. I mean, these are tiny countries compared to um, Russia, Libya, and Syria. Then the amount of money that one can steal and control is just orders of magnitude greater. And so there's a big financial incentive. And that's how Russia has ended up becoming fully integrated with the West. And they understand our systems work better than we do because they've got more money and more incentive to figure this stuff out. I think there's something even beyond the economy of scale that you referenced. It's the degree of sophistication of the state apparatus that can, for example, do active measures abroad or knows how to target the this and that media influencer or the this and that lawyer, plus, of course, the Russian veto on the Security Council that allows them to have a certain mythical kind of heft in terms of their ability to disorder the international system. Do you think that this need to protect themselves at home, this kleptocracy, has really fundamentally shaped how the international order has evolved over the last 10 or 15 years? Definitely. I, I mean, I think that one of their biggest exports has been corruption, and they've <laughs> corrupted all the international institutions they belong to. And so Interpol has become the long arm of the Russian mafia. Oh, I've heard your story. I mean, they, they've been chasing me through Interpol with eight different Interpol notices. 
there was a Russian in charge of the UN Drug Control Center who was like involved in drugs. This is a crazy story. In Geneva, there was a guy who was um, working at the UN Weapons Proliferation Center in Geneva after the war had started. He was the son of the person producing um, Russian drones using the war in Ukraine. So the absurdity of, of everything that they do and all their interaction and all these international organizations. And the West has fully allowed that. They say, well, these people kind of look like us. They look European and, you know, they're members of this organization. And so they're like, you know, we should treat them with the same deference we treat everybody else because we assume everybody is sort of playing by the rules. And, and of course, the Russians don't play by anybody's set of rules. I think that that point is incredibly critical for what we're about on the Disorder podcast, which is that the very openness of the international system has let the enemies of order inside the gates. And when they're inside the gates, whether it's blocking ability or subverting or mocking, and, and we see this in terms of how, say, I don't know, a Trump or a Xi relates to international institutions. But you, you referenced some personal stories. So I thought, why don't we back up? I'd love to you know, hear more about how your background and, and the way that you grew up has shaped the way you look at things. I know that we have New Jersey and Colorado connections both in common, and we're both Americans who have chosen to become Brits, not for romantic or financial reasons, but for political ones. So anything you want to share about those dynamics and how they've influenced how you see the world? So my grandfather was an American communist who went to Russia, met my grandmother, who was a, um, a Russian Jew, and they got married in Russia. My father was born there, and then they returned to America and he became the head of the American Communist Party from 1932 to 1945. My father was a mathematician, and uh, I was born in Princeton, New Jersey. He was working at the Institute for Advanced Studies and then um, grew up in Chicago. I was I loved the mountains and I loved skiing, and so I went to the University of Colorado. And I am, as all listeners know, recovering from my ACL injury. Oh. My folks live in Vail, and I uh, spent a lot of my time growing up in Colorado. Well, it's a glorious place. Wish I could spend more time there. <laughs> and then I, when the Berlin Wall came down and I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, I said, if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has come down, I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in, in Eastern Europe. And I moved to London and I eventually became British. And I was very happy to become British and I gave up my American citizenship. And in my case, I gave it up because I had this terrible legacy in my family, where my family was persecuted during the McCarthy era for their communist beliefs. And I'm not a communist, but the fact that they were persecuted so viciously. And my grandmother, who was dying of cancer, the equivalent back then of the Department of Homeland Security, wanted to deport her. She was an American citizen and an emigre. They wanted to deport her back to Russia while she was on her deathbed dying of cancer. And it just made me feel like um, the rule of law in America only exists until it doesn't exist. And by the way, I've seen it firsthand in my own life. When Trump was president, Putin asked at the Helsinki summit to uh, hand me over. And Trump said, yeah, I think, sure. <laughs> and so thank God I'm a British citizen and not an American citizen because he doesn't have the authority to hand me over. Back to just kind of how background and family legacy might shape how you view the affairs of the day. Anything to pull out in terms of something that happened to you or an upbringing experience that maybe gives you a neat cast of mind on today's events? You know, even though my grandfather was a communist, why was he a communist? He was a communist because he grew up in Wichita, Kansas during the Great Dust Bowl and um, family lost their farm and he became a, a fighter for the disenfranchised. You know, I, I experienced the um, 
Putin regime murdering Sergei Magnitsky, and I became a human rights activist. And so even though we came at it from a totally different angle, so he came at it as a communist, I came at it as a capitalist, we both ended up being fighters against a system that we didn't like for the benefit of the little guy. It's very interesting because, you know, is that genetic or is that, that cultural? I don't know. But um, I also no noticed the same thing in my own kids, that they're all very, very much don't like injustice. It's great getting to know you, but unfortunately, you know, we're speaking in the middle of February of 2024, and it's really difficult to keep tears from our eyes. I can tell that you're an emotional person. How did you feel on Friday the 16th when you heard the news? So you're referring to the news of Alexei Navalny being murdered. It was just like a punch in the gut. I mean, I felt like somebody had hit me really hard in the gut. At the moment I heard the news, I was sitting in a room at the Munich Security Conference at the Bayerischerhof Hotel. I was meeting with a um, member of the Polish delegation. I got a phone call from a journalist saying, what is your comment? Alexei Navalny has been killed. I didn't have a comment. I needed to, like, absorb it. Uh, Alexei Navalny, for me, was, wasn't just a, um abstract person. Of course. He, he, was a, he was a friend. He was an ally. And he was someone who had worked very closely with me and my team on the Justice for Sergei Magnitsky campaign. And he had put himself on numerous occasions at great personal risk to help us and of course, he went on to much, much bigger things, sort of to basically be the primary challenger to Putin. But it was really just a shock. I mean, just not an intellectual shock. I mean, we all knew that he was, Putin was capable of killing and he was the most likely person to be killed. But somehow he had survived for three years in prison. And, and so it, we kind of, I kind of got used to the fact that he hadn't been killed and that somehow he was going to survive. And I I thought he had a, like a grand vision and a plan that that I should trust. You know, he he chose to go back to Russia he knew what he was doing. It was all going to work out. It was all going to be okay. And then it wasn't. And particularly because he always assured everyone, everything is going to be okay. You know, he's telling the Russian people and everybody else that, you know, no matter how bad it is, it's all going to be okay. And then he's dead. And it's really hard to explain how terrible that is, but it's just so terrible. So I want to start with my condolences. I feel for you and for Yulia and for Evgenia Karamorza and for others who feel this connection. My thought is that when you have a friendship which is undergirded not only by a shared mission, but admiration, and obviously I have not met this man, but I know that I don't have the courage and the sheer will that he had. It's difficult to not feel how passionately his friends must feel about that. And so I feel for you in your loss. What I want to ask you, because... Alexei's very courageous wife has been on the airwaves, not only at the Munich Security Conference, but in, in, in lots of programs, giving her vision of what Alexei would like the world and particularly Russians to know about her husband. But what do you think listeners who are, you know, very educated Brits and Americans, what would Alexei Navalny like them to know about his life, his quest, his character? Well, the main thing that Alexei Navalny um, did for everybody was show the world that no matter how badly they were treating him, he was going to still smile and joke and stand up for what was right and condemn what was wrong. 
And if I could interject here, I've been thinking a lot about quasi-religious leadership. An interesting thing about Jesus, but also Socrates, is the willingness to die for an idea. And that the justice of the idea is self-evident when the practitioner, who maybe has a great life or is very handsome and young and could be living in, in exile, is nonetheless willing to die for the idea. And this has been operating on how I've been processing this. Like, I woke up very sad today, I guess knowing because I would be meeting you. And I'm like, why is this moving me so much? I don't know this man, right? But I was thinking about the ancient Greeks and then about Jesus. They were willing to die so that their idea would live on. Well, in this case, it is living on. But but I should point out that there's something really sort of truly heartbreaking and tragic about this whole thing, which is that— Oh, it's very tragic. But, and, but the, and, and, and that is that he was telling everybody that it's going to be okay. If I can do it, you can do it. And the, and the message was that you don't have to compromise. You can maintain the truth. You can maintain integrity. And whatever they do, you can't take that away. And then they killed him. And it's just so demoralizing for everybody because we all, in our own ways, you know, I don't, nobody was as brave as he was to go back into the custody of their killers, knowing for sure you're going to lose your liberty and you could lose your life. Nobody would be willing to do that except for him. And, and that was such an unbelievably symbolic and brave move that it made everybody feel a little bit more hopeful and a little stronger. And like, you know, if you could even show like one one hundredth of that type of fortitude. And he made everybody sort of better people by doing that. And then they fucking killed him. But again, having said that, in in a certain way, all, all of, as we're all sort of awash in grief and lack of direction, the fact that Putin has done this makes him all that much more terrible for everybody in the world. I mean, Putin was, was always terrible, but somehow this makes it that much more terrible. To do this to someone with a uh a soul of gold who was able to joke with his captors and all of that. But I want to get at a historical resonance here. Obviously, Plato tells us that after Socrates was condemned to death, Socrates' friends, and some of them were quite wealthy, Glaucon and others, they come to him and say, we've bribed the guards. You're out, buddy. And he says, no, I mean, if the people of Athens really felt I should die, I'm ready to die for this idea. And after being poisoned, Navalny... Obviously, he made it to Germany. Yep. He was out. His friends were willing to protect him. And he was going to say, if the thugocracy led by the thug-in-chief Putin wants to torture me and condemn me to death, I have to be back in Russia. I think he didn't expect that he was going to die. I mean, I think he knew there was a chance of dying. But I think he also knew that, that he believed that good would triumph over evil and that the Putin regime would crumble and then mm. this would, he would have an opportunity to... Um, uh, so that might be even more messianic than I had realized. I thought it was more the Socrates. He understood that through his death, he would really showcase. I mean, I think he knew there was a chance of dying and even said so. But at the same time, he also, he went there w with some hope for all of us and for the Russian people in particular that it doesn't have to always be this way. And that um, yes. if he could tolerate it, Everybody could tolerate it. And yes. If, and if he could stand up to the regime, everybody could stand up to the regime. I love what Yulia Navalny has said, which is that we don't all have to be heroic messiahs. If we can all in our little way, like 
I donated 10 pounds this month or, you know, I try on my podcast to highlight certain issues. If we can all in our eensy-weensy way, because there are billions of us and there are only so many of the evil baddies. And I think that that is really inspirational. But moving beyond expressing outrage to doing something. President Biden promised devastating consequences. Obviously, I haven't seen anything happen and I'm not holding my breath, but we can use this platform what should they be? Well, there's sort of three things, very practical sort of political things. The, the first is, well, I should point out that he made that statement in 2021 before the war had started, um, before Putin invaded Ukraine. So Putin invaded Ukraine and most of the devastating consequences that he had in his back pocket for the murder of Alexei Navalny have been rolled out times 50 in response to the war in Ukraine. So we we kind of have sort of shot most of our bullets in that in that area. Particularly on sanctions. It's yeah. tough to ratchet them up further. And 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 the sanctions, and sure, we can ratchet them up further and we should do some symbolic sanctions or whatever, but that's not going to change Putin's calculus yeah. or make him feel any type of pain. Yep. So we want him to feel pain. We want Putin to feel pain for what he's done because if he doesn't feel pain, this is... In fact, if he doesn't feel pain, he'll laugh that he got away with it. Of course. And he'll laugh and then he'll do some more. So he's got to feel pain. So what, what kind of pain can he feel? Well, first of all, it seems to me that the U.S. is now in a position, a much more likely position to approve the um, $63 billion of military aid that's been blocked by a small number of far-right Republicans. I sure hope so. And I think so. And I think so because I, I've worked with politicians over many years, and I know that this type of action, doing something so outrageous like this, it makes it very difficult to be the member of the House of Representatives who's got to stand up and somehow justify why they're supporting Putin. Particularly if you say that you're in the party of Reagan. Well, I mean, the, the people have been saying all sorts of nonsense. But after something like this, it's very difficult to, um, like, say... The optics. You know, it just doesn't... I mean, you know, it's political suicide. And so I think that that's going to happen. But the thing that we can all do, and in, in this we're sitting here doing this in London, is that there's $300 billion of Russian central bank reserves that were frozen in the first week of the war. That money was frozen. It was supposed to be frozen until the war ended. It seemed to me early on that that money shouldn't just be frozen. It should be confiscated. I was going to ask you about that later. So may I jump in? I have a Ukrainian composer friend who lives in St. John's Wood. And she was saying, this is a G7 decision and the U.S. and U.K. can't do it alone. That's correct. It's got to be done by everybody because the concern is if one country does it and nobody, somebody else doesn't, then they say, well, why should we keep our money in dollars anymore? We can keep it in euros and it's safer. Everyone's got to do it together. What I've seen, again, is that, is that everybody is looking for something to do, something that's meaningful to do. And the obvious meaningful thing to do is to confiscate this money. And I think that they should call it the Navalny Act. Love it. And they should call it the Navalny Act. But doesn't it need to be done as a surprise so that if they wait and deliberate and whatever, or it doesn't matter because this is frozen money. It's not like they can't in move the beginning. It. They can't move the okay. money. The money is all it's being held. Great. And that's one of the reasons why they haven't done anything with it is that everyone's just prevaricating and consulting lawyers and you know wringing their hands and saying it's so complicated and so on and so forth. It's not complicated. It's not complicated at all. Putin has created more than a trillion dollars of damage in Ukraine. Now, this is $300 billion. It doesn't even pay for the damage, but at least starts the... Oh, the damage is priceless. Yeah, of course. And, 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 anything that we can do punitively is not, a, not even close to that. But may I try to get to some of the politics here? 
Of course, I'd love to think that Richie Sunak is ready to sign the orders to do this immediately. But is there still that dynamic that as the city of London is the handmaiden to the kleptocrats of the world, that they are more worried than the Americans of this precedent? Because then, oh, my God, is some Nigerian or Saudi prince going to be like, we're withdrawing our money and putting it in Switzerland? Well, I mean, the Swiss have to participate along with everybody else, for sure. But if everyone, if, so if everybody participates together in this exercise. So it's a collective action problem. Yeah. But so, but, and I think it's not that hard in, in this moment in time to get everyone to join collectively, like we did when the war started and everybody froze the money in the first place. Yeah. If everybody does it, if the U.S. does it and the EU does it and Switzerland does it, you know, where's the Nigerian going to keep his money? Is he going to, like, buy Iranian reals and Argentine pesos? No, of course not. I know, I know this as a, as a finance guy, that, that people keep their money in reserve currencies because they're reserve currencies, and, and the other ones aren't. And that's just how it works. And, and so th- there's not that risk. And, so I, and I do think this is going to happen. And it would be nice to call it the Navalny Act because it's just such an insult to Putin. You kill this man, we're going to take $300 billion of your money, and we're going to give it to the country you're invading so they can use it to fight back. That's very powerful. What is the saying from your mouth to God's ears? And a lot of other people's mouths are also saying it. David Cameron's talking about it. The main bottleneck right now is that Europe is such a spineless place that they're all sort of, um, you know, can't quite get there. But they will. They will. So my thesis of the global enduring disorder, which is my term bill for the post-post-Cold War period that we live in, is that it is defined by collective action failures. That when we have a coordination problem, It used to be, during British hegemony from, say, 1815 to before World War I, the British led an international system, they established the rules of trade, they policed uh, the maritime domain, and then, and, and roughly from the end of World War II until 10, 20 years ago, the American hegemon could convene and coordinate because of that, you know, hegemonic coordination advantage. So let's say someone is having these conversations and Blinken knows that it needs to be called the Navalny Act, and Blinken knows that he needs to work with Lord Cameron on these and these issues. Why is it so bloody difficult to coordinate stuff now that the 1960s seemed like a completely bygone era in terms of how easy it was to coordinate then? I think in this one, they'll, they'll get very coordinated in the same way as we, we'd never expected any type of coordination until the war started. Now we're coordinating like hell on weapons. And you're right. You're right. But... Um, Putin has made it much easier to coordinate. I you hope know, you're our, right. Our, our, our instincts are to be like completely inward looking and not thinking about coordinating and doing stupid stuff and not harmonizing. That's how every government behaves until something like this happens. Except I just want to point out some things. There isn't a huge amount of coordination between the non-special forces of Ukraine, in other words, their regular army, and the American and British chiefs of staff. We don't necessarily know what they're doing. I've heard from colleagues of mine in West Point, you know, they go to Germany to teach some Ukrainians how to assault a trench, but the courses are not administered in any any coherent fashion. And then it turns out that a lot of NATO countries, we have interoperable but not standardized weapon systems. And that although everything that you say is true, when an issue gets to be so big, then yes, we coordinate. In terms of like actually increasing Ukrainian fighting capacity or how we train them or even diplomatic responses to this, I don't really see even this 
getting to the level where we're going to really coordinate our response coherently. I'm not sure I agree. I mean, I, I, I've, I've been to uh, Aldershot where we were training up Ukrainian soldiers and, you know, and, and the Poles were doing it and the Germans were doing it. I mean, it's, there's been a lot of coordination. I mean, you know, maybe it's not perfect coordination. I'm sure you could find flaws in it. But this has been pretty amazing, actually. I mean, you know, believe me, when before all this war stuff, the invasion, everybody was just completely out to lunch when it came to Russia. 100%. But I think that the war brought people in ways together that I've never seen before. And particularly the European Union, which never made any decisions about anything, all of a sudden became a powerful force. And so... Yeah, of course, everything is doesn't work the way it should, and I'm sure it didn't in World War II. And, you know, I mean, there's... Yes. Um, but it's a lot better than it used to be, for sure. So let's talk about, you know, other things that can be done, sanctions. We know about the two Magnitsky Acts. My question, not only what damage have they actually done to Putin and his cronies, but what can we do to take that framework to the next level, given this? Well, the Magnitsky Act was the um, template for all the sanctions against individuals that have been rolled out since then. The The remarkable thing is that before the Magnitsky Act, sanctions were always these um, very blunt instruments going after a whole country. And then, yeah. uh, I don't know why anyone hadn't thought of it until then, but I was saying, well, let's just go after the people who make all the terrible decisions. And everyone said, oh, genius, let, let's do that. And then it's... Having said that, as far as Russia is concerned, the Magnitsky Act, I mean, there's more implementation to be done. I think we can sanction a few more oligarchs. Yeah. But here's what, what I would say is that the Magnitsky Act doesn't just apply to Russia. It's a global piece of legislation. Oh, of yes. and it applies to all sorts of bad actors. And as rigorous as we've been in applying the Magnitsky Act or its successor to Russians, you know, there's a lot of other really bad actors. China is doing really terrible stuff, and Iran is doing really terrible stuff. We're going to come stuff. to that when we order the disorder. And a lot of other places. And the Magnitsky Act hasn't been used liberally in those situations. And so we really need to start um, thinking about that. How can the Disorder Show or other centrist uh, podcasts like the Goldhanger Network, how can we help you in your efforts? What, what would you like people like me and them to call attention to? Well, the thing that I'm most actively involved in, which is the most important thing to me, is Vladimir Karamurza. Vladimir Karamurza helped me get the Magnitsky Act passed yes. all over the world. He's a friend. He's an ally. He's a, a real Russian patriot, not, not the fake kind like Putin. 100%. And in response to his opposition to Putin and his protesting the war, he's been sentenced to 25 years in prison. Our listeners know really well the episode that we did with Evgenia was so moving and the number of listener comments, you know, people are really keyed into this issue. So if they're saying, what can they do? Well, so here we, so let me, let me tell you where we are on this whole thing. So first of all, Vladimir, as perhaps many of your listeners will know, was poisoned twice. They do know, yeah. And, and the after effects of the poison have stayed with him. He's been disabled from the poisoning and, and it affects him very profoundly, particularly as he's serving a 25 year sentence for, quote, treason in a Siberian solitary confinement cell. And so I didn't believe he was going to survive before they killed Alexei Navalny, and now I think it's even more likely that they're going to kill him. And so it's become, well, it always has been since he was arrested, but it's become an urgent priority to figure out how to get him out. So how do we get him out? And the answer is um, it's going to have to go back to the old-style bridge of spies prisoner swap, where we identify some Russian spies that have been rounded up in the West that they want, and we swap them for 
Vladimir and maybe Ilya Yashin and um, Alexei Gornov and various other vulnerable political prisoners in Russia. I think it's in the West's interest to do a prisoner swap like this. And, because and given Vladimir's British nationality, should we ask people to write their MPs that they want this? What, what would you suggest? Well, I'll get to that in a second. So I, I think it's, first of all, in, in the West's interests to free these people because if and when, and when I should say, the Putin regime crumbles, which it will sooner or later, we're going to need people who believe in democracy, freedom, engagement with the West to be running Russia. And these are the people who... We're in the political opposition who wanted to do it on that basis. And so it's really, we don't want to be in a position like we were with Egypt when the whole thing came undone with Mubarak's um, dictatorship and there was there was nothing there. And so the Muslim Brotherhood took over. We want to have a proper government that comes from the real political, honest political opposition. And that's what Vladimir Karamurza represents. So we need to do a prisoner swap. And so I have um, taken it upon myself to go to meet with foreign ministers, and I was at the Munich Security Conference, and I met with a dozen foreign ministers from all sorts of countries around Europe and, and further afield. And I said, I, here's the pitch, that Vladimir and a bunch of other Russian political prisoners are at risk of dying, particularly after Navalny. They're our future. We need to get them out. We've done this before. We've done this during Sharansky and Bukovsky. These are famous... The world so was more coordinated then. Soviet... Well, I'm coordinating the world myself. And I said to, you know, foreign minister from X country, if you have Russian spies in your prison, will you um, participate in this? And I went one after another after another. I met with a dozen foreign ministers. And every foreign minister who I met with said yes. The only country that declined to be involved is the United Kingdom. And I, and what's, rel what's so shocking about that is Vladimir Karamurza, he doesn't have a Lithuanian passport. He doesn't have a Polish passport. He has a British passport. And this country says, no, we don't get involved. I said, well, bullshit. It took Richard Ratcliffe a hunger strike in front of the foreign office for a month before they got involved. And then they freed his wife, Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe. And Britain was involved in the Sharansky and Bukowski stories. And so, yes, they do get involved, but they've somehow decided they don't get involved. And so Britain is going to sit this one out. And so Bill Browder, a private citizen, is going to have to be going around working with other countries. And we will get it done eventually with other countries putting together a prisoner swap because the British want to sit this one out. And I find that outrageous, insulting to British citizens and a terrible precedent. And it shows the total lack of maturity of British government to have a policy like that. They should have a, a nuanced non-explicit foreign policy about hostages where they deal with each case as it comes up and figure out what to do. So if you have a British passport and you get taken hostage, you're really unlucky because if you're French or you're American, they'll get you out, but not here. After the break, how can we order the disorder? Playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. So let's try to order the disorder together, Bill. 
you know, we really value your expertise and experience, and we'd like to just zoom out from this Russia case. What does this tell us about the global order? What are the lessons that can and should be learned from Western mishandling of deterring Russia for, you know, at least a decade and a half? What can we learn from that? How should we deter China differently? How can we make sure that these activists that we've, you know, we've heard of Jimmy Lay in Hong Kong or Nathan Law being tried in absentia, what are the lessons that we can draw about how we should treat those cases? Well, the, the main lesson is that if you um, appease dictators, they then do damage that's so financially damaging that a lot of times people don't want to touch these guys because, hey, well, you know, we do business with China. We shouldn't, like, you know, rock the boat. Well, let me tell you, it would be literally a million times more costly if China invades Taiwan and there's a war than it is to show them our teeth right now. After the West didn't do anything when Putin took Georgia and, and invaded to Crimea and eastern Ukraine and carpet-bombed Syria and poisoned Litvinenko and Skripals and all this other stuff. We just constantly did nothing. And we're kind of letting China get away with it. And we should show them our teeth right now because if they see our teeth right now, and China's a business country, they might decide, you know what? Costs are too great to go after the benefits of taking Taiwan or whatever nasty thing they have cooked up. A stitch in time saves nine. And appeasement never pays. And, you know, this is stuff we've been talking about here on The Disorder Show. If you want to enforce order, you have to enforce it before things are so disordered that it's really difficult to put the cat back in the bag. Yeah, that's where we are in Ukraine right now. So now I want to kind of talk about some positive things. You know, it's really difficult to be positive at a moment like this. But when I look, you know, at developments in Poland where the Poles have taken back control from their neo-populist, their anti-woke, anti-gay, anti-international collaboration, anti-truth overlords. And then Donald Tusk won the election. What lessons can we draw as Americans and Brits when we're facing down our homegrown neo-populism? Are there some positive things, like good trend lines that we can draw here? Yeah, I mean, for every bad story, there's a good story. You know, whether you um, like Boris Johnson or not, you know, he lied to Parliament. And then he got out. They and they, and they, kicked, they kicked him out. Bolsonaro was kicked out. Trump was kicked out. These systems do work. You know, they don't work perfectly, and there's a lot of nasty stuff in between. And who knows? Maybe I will eat my words, you know, when Trump gets elected and, and then um, sets off, a, you know, American handmade tale type of uh, dictatorship. But, you know, maybe the people say, you know what, what we— <laughs> This guy's out of his, out of his mind. You know, we don't we don't want him. You know, and then maybe you know Elon Musk's ownership of Twitter that Twitter loses its influence. You know, <laughs> you know whatever the tricks were that the bad guys used last time, they don't work the second time. And I think you're pointing out something, which is that most people in the democratic world, their heart is in the right place, even if they can be misled or they can have their emotions pulled one way or the other and confused on a thing like a migrant issue or whatever, people's heart is in the right place. They want to live in an ordered world. Yep. And so then here's my last question to you. Has there ever been a global order? Do we live in a interconnected world with the internet and the moving of financial transactions, which is amenable to creating more ordering institutions? 
Yeah, I think that we're in a moment of flux and chaos as the the technologies have gone quicker than the regulation. But we we always figure out how to get stuff back in place as time goes on. Justice moves slowly, regulation moves slowly, but it doesn't mean that that there isn't going to be justice and there isn't going to be regulation. I come from Illinois. You know, there's been some like enormous number of ex-governors went to jail. <laughs> you know, I'm sure Bob at the time. Yeah. And and before him, uh, several others. And I'm sure that when they were governing, everyone was saying, my God, what a corrupt state we live in, et cetera. But the system worked. They went to jail. Trump is facing 91 or 92 counts of criminal activity. I can't keep count myself. Of criminal activity. You know, he was just, the court found that he should pay $370 million. You know, he committed a fraud and he was found guilty by a court of law. Yeah, this is the Martin Luther King quote that the arc of history is long, but it's bending towards justice. And I think that you have, in a sophisticated way, pointed out that it's really important to have faith and trust and hope. Hope is our weapon. When I think about what you've done with your life and how much you've achieved, and you can't achieve that without hope, with pure cynicism, like, oh my God, it's so broken. How could it be that this terrible tragedy is allowed to stand? Oh, I'm, you know what? It's just fucked. And that you need hope as our superpower, regular people and our institutions of democracy and accountability, that they do work, gives them the power to work, that belief. And you can also make things work. You know, that's one thing I've learned is that um, if you find something that really outrages you, can change things. Any person can change things. You know, you don't even have to be that like the tiny thing. You can be a big thing if you really want to. Well, it's been a real pleasure to order the disorder with you, Bill. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So, Jason, well done for an absolutely amazing interview with an amazing, inspirational person. I mean, Bill is somebody who never anticipated becoming a kind of freedom fighter or warrior for justice. And it was only through his own personal experience, the brutal murder of his own colleague, Sergei Manitsky, by the Russian regime, that he has ended up in this position as a sort of campaigner for justice and one of the most outspoken critics of Vladimir Putin. Framing Bill as a kind of accidental human rights campaigner and someone who just found himself thrusted into this role of standing up for his murdered lawyer makes me realize that he's like a modern day Cincinnatus. He didn't seek power or prominence and he didn't seek to not just be an investor with a private life. And he ended up being on Putin's number one foreign enemies list and having Interpol warrants against him because he did what he thought was right. I think we probably need more people like that to be willing to stand up for their values and not these lot who, when they're 14 or 15, are like, oh, I'm going to be running for president or I want to be a famous campaigner because there's a different perspective on things. Yeah. So I really love Bill's idea of passing a Navalny Act, which authorizes the seizure and use of all Russia's frozen assets and sending them to Ukraine. I think that would be a very neat and a hard-hitting sanction for what Putin has done in murdering Navalny. 
I have to say, I am beyond gobsmacked that even after this shocking murder of Navalny, so far, all the British government has done is impose a few sanctions on six guards at the prison where he died, as if that is going to change anything. I mean, are these six prison guards people who send their kids to Eton? Do they come and regularly holiday in London? I mean, what the hell is the point of sanctioning six prison guards? That does absolutely nothing. And during your interview with Bill, you came up with this absolutely brilliant phrase about the city of London being the, quote, handmaiden of the kleptocrats of the world. And then Bill told you in the interview that of all the Western governments he's lobbied since the Navalny murder, Britain is the only one so far refusing to consider a prisoner swap to free other detainees like Vladimir Karamurza, who is himself a Brit and who is very likely next on Putin's kill list. So I just cannot believe that. And I do think there's a problem in the foreign policy establishment. And I was probably guilty of it myself as a diplomat, and I feel bad about it, which is it's so easy to find reasons not to do things. Well, this could be too hard, or that might have that impact, rather than what we can do. So I actually beg everyone listening to this podcast, write to your member of parliament and ask them to campaign for a prisoner swap, lobby to release Russia's frozen assets to Ukraine, and lobby for the Navalny Act. We all can make a difference. Yes. And so interestingly enough, I never realized until last night, Alex, that when I bike home from central London, I go past Boris Nemtsov place in Highgate. Oh. What I hope doesn't happen is that we end up with a Alexei Navalny place somewhere in Marlebone or Highgate or Hampstead, and we've done nothing. Because that is even worse than not naming the place, because it commemorates a failure to do what is really required. So I only want us to end up with Alexei Navalny street or place in DC or Manhattan or London if we do what you and Bill have said, which is to use the already frozen Russian assets and give all four weapons so that Ukraine can push back in Donbass and can reconstruct itself, then it's great when we make the Navalny Road in North London, because when you're there, you will remember, hey, I remember back in 2024 when our leaders grew a pair and actually did something. <laughs> then the street or the place is commemorating something of meaning. Yeah, well, actually, as you were saying that, I immediately thought back to your interview with Evgenia and your idea of a sort of automatic response, automaticity. We tell Putin up front that if you do this, automatically, these are going to be the consequences. I mean, what I find astonishing about the Navalny murder is I have absolutely no doubt that right now in the G7 and the G20 and behind the scenes, a heck of a lot of leaders are thinking, what else can we do to express our disapproval and to 
put the squeeze on Putin. But why didn't they have those measures lined up in advance? So we already knew what we were going to do. And the minute the news of the Navalny murder dropped, immediately those sanctions or those measures exactly. or those consequences were applied. So let's not wait until Kara Mirza is dead to then think what else we can do. It should be the other way around. It should be Putin worrying. If he does this next atrocious act, automatically he knows he's going to suffer these consequences. That's exactly what I'd like to do, that you spell out to the meanie evil bad guys what the consequences of their actions will be. Of course, we should have this automaticity baked in. We should already have got it lined up now. Why are we only now? I, I can after tell you the, the answer for why we haven't. It's the enduring disorder. It's the very nature of our coordination not working and collective action problems. Because, yes, it's great that Bill can go and meet with seven G7 foreign ministers and get six out of the seven to agree to something, but it just begs the question. Why is it that Blinken's office isn't already coordinated the seven foreign ministers? Like, what is Blinken's office for? And then you're like, oh, it's the enduring disorder. It's easier for a private citizen to solve these things because our institutions are so either bureaucratic or afraid or caught up with some busy work than to get out ahead of, you know, these core challenges to the democratic world order. Yeah, I mean- I don't want to trivialize this. So please understand, I'm not making this comparison in order to trivialize it or make it sound silly. But we quite regularly have disorder in our own household. And we have disorder in our own household when our kids rule the roost and we're constantly reacting to their transgressions. And every so often, my husband and I pull ourselves together and we say, hang on a minute, we need to make clear up front to our boys, if you do this, your gaming controller is going. And if you double down, your iPhone is going. And if you double down again, the remote control on the TV is going. And it is amazing when we actually set out in advance what happens if they cross a line, they don't cross that line. It's when we sort of relax and drop the ball and they start doing things and we're trying to patch it up afterwards that disorder starts to take hold. So as I said, I don't mean to trivialize it, but I think any parent listening here will instantly know what I mean. I could see you getting a large advance on your book called Automaticity in Sanctions for Parents, or even better, I can see you getting a large advance and a really great London-based agent for your book, Parenting Through Use of Automatic Sanctions. Oh my God. Or ordering your household and ordering the world. <laughs> <laughs> so it's on us to do a lot of things, but we should do many of them, I think, in support of the Russian people. So it's rather critical that we lay the groundwork to support those other pro-democracy and pro-freedom voices, right? Like what the interview with Bill points out is that it requires so much moral clarity on our side and courage to hold our policymakers' feet to the fire, to get the job done, to say the difficult statements, to pass the sanctions, some of which are going to cause some law firms and investment houses in London and New York to make a little bit less profit this year. Poor them, right? What I come away from this is that there are messianic aspects to Navalny willing to die to witness the truth of his cause. 
And Bill Browder has some of the modern day Cincinnatus, a guy who probably just wanted to live a private life. But then when certain things happened, he stood up, you know, and he stood up against the injustice that was done to his lawyer and friend, Sergei Magnitsky. And now he's standing up to the horrible injustice done to his friend and colleague, Alexei Navalny. And we need to channel the wisdom and the outrage of people like Bill. Very well said, Jason. I have a quote, as usual, from the great and legendary former Senator John McCain, (laughs) who used to say in his unique brand of black humor, it's always darkest before it turns pitch black. (laughs) And then he would laugh uproariously. (laughs) And everyone, we used to hear him make that joke every single time, and we would all fall about laughing. So yeah, it seems a pretty dark hour. But his point was, you know, making humor of it, you can emerge. And Navalny had that weapon of humor as well. I think he would have appreciated that John McCain saying. So thank you for listening. And if you too want to help order the disorder, you can tap follow right now wherever you get your podcasts and you'll be notified when every new episode launches. And if you want to write us some questions or write us about other advocacy and charities that you can help, please write us at disordershow at gmail.com. We're unbelievably honored to be able to help you in any way with the advocacy you might want to do. Finally, if you want to know more about any of the topics discussed today, then please subscribe to our Substack. It's completely free and you can find the link in our show notes. Our producer, also has a lot of moral courage, and his name is George McDonough, and our executive producer is the lovely Neil Fern. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an orderly week. <laughs>